gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the Stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller Studcast. I'm Jeff Maldron, and it's a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. And now, the man of the hour, the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how you doing today, my man? I'm doing great, Jeff. Just as good as I could be doing, my man. Just really looking forward to this program today. I think this is going to be a very interesting one, uh, especially the uh, the learning tree in this one. It's about uh, George Gulison. I don't know how many fans out there worldwide that listen to us or are aware of who George Goulis is, but uh, you know, I'm sure there's got to be something on YouTube and. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> if people want to verify kind of what I say about this guy today, uh, they might take a look at YouTube. Uh, I don't know they ever had a great match. <laughs> I mean, if, uh, I think he'll 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 verify uh, what I say today by just uh, somebody watching him in action. But uh, this one's a great one today, Jeff. Uh, we're going to start today. Uh, we've got to finish out our stud cast from last week. Uh, we had a longer stud cast last week. And we didn't get to the attendance and the house and the payoffs for that second Coliseum show. Which okay, was Ron, I tell you what, before we do that, usually what I would say is, Ron, where are we going today? But I'm going to stop myself because a little bird spoke to me in my ear, Ron. And I'm going to surprise all the fans because I know that today may be a bit more special than some other days to the Tennessee stud. Is it not, in fact, your birthday, Ron Fuller? Uh, yes, sir, it is. <laughs> No, I, I didn't expect that, that you know. <laughs> yeah, it happens to be my birthday today. You know? Well, I wanted to wish you, before we start uh, talking here, I wanted to wish you a happy birthday, my man. Well, thank you very much. You know, and oddly enough, you know, since you're bringing that up, you know, what's really strange here, and it's just happened since the first of this year, about episode maybe 125, 26, somewhere in there. We got into January of 1976. And we have been tracking here exactly 44 years. What we talk about today is going to be 44 years ago in uh, southeastern wrestling in Knoxville. I mean, uh, and we're tracking just about for the last eight programs, week to week, every week. We talk about almost the same night that we ran 44 years ago earlier, the cards that we're talking about, these Knoxville cards. So, yeah, it is my birthday. And, uh, Thanks for recognizing it, and uh, you know I'm just uh, happy to have another one at my age. Be honest with you, you know, so it's a good thing. And uh, I, I, Ron, I like to say every day above ground is better than one below, my man. Darn right, darn right. I, I certainly. Well, now, where are we going today, Ron? Okay, well, you know, we're going to finish out that uh, last week's stud cast, uh, and then one of the few times that we've kind of run out of time. Uh, and last week uh, we really didn't get to the attendance for that show what the house was and the payoffs was, and that was that second Coliseum show in 1976. It was actually on February 22nd. And uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, we're not just going to cover that, we're going to cover the five other cities that ran that week, and uh, we'll give you a rundown on all those payoffs and what and the, the type of uh, business we were doing that week. Uh, we're going to discuss the card, the event of February 29th. That's going to be the focus on today's show. And it's going to require us to change our format a little bit uh, because this this is a very unusual event. It's five teams in a one-day tournament. And the winner is going to get the brand-new first-ever, become the first-ever Southeastern Tag Champions. Uh, we're going to also look at the TV, which I, I've already said, uh, you know, we changed the format for the first 
maybe the only time in the history of Southeastern wrestling because of this tournament. And uh, we're going to talk about the results of the show, the attendance like we normally do, and uh, maybe some of the other five events if we get to it today. And uh, then we're going to do a learning tree. And uh, this one is an unusual learning tree. That's why I don't have a person's name, because I'm going to be honest with you, this is my learning tree. It was the learning tree that I actually got myself as a young booker and uh, and an owner of a company. And so, you know, this... Uh, this one is going to be an unusual. We're going to discuss an unwanted participant that I was kind of forced to put into my second Coliseum show, the one we talked about last week, as a matter of fact. And on that first match of that show was George Goulas. And uh, George Goulas, uh, you know, I don't know a good way to put this. Maybe he is the worst wrestler in the history of the sport. You know, uh, and he had his, this is going to be his only chance. Uh, he works on this card. And he did it because my father kind of pressured me into booking him as a favor to his dad, Nick Goulas. He said, uh, would you put George on one of your Coliseum cards? Uh, I really hated to do it, but uh, we're going to get that later in the program. Uh, basically, the learning tree today is for me personally. So uh, we'll begin today with where we left off on last week's studcast. Obviously, we'll talk about the results of that Coliseum card. We already did that. We're going to talk about the money and the, the attendance. So the attendance was the best so far in the Coliseum, 4,600 at this point, for close to getting to close to 5,000 people. First show in there, we were around 2,500. Now we're almost doubled that a year later. Dollar ticket price increase, that led to a gross event house of about $16,000. Wrestlers payrolls, 4,500. Uh, we had total 19 wrestlers on that card, big card. Two referees. Obviously, you got seven matches. You're going to have to have two referees. Uh, George Goulas, Tony Peters, and the two refs got 125 each. George Goulas was very much overpaid. Uh, Jack and Roy Lee, Welch, uh, the superstars, Tanaka, Charlie Cook, Fabulous Moolah, Joyce Grable, Dick Steinborn, Jimmy Golden, all of those guys got about 200 each. And then the two top matches, Robert and my dad and, and uh, Norvell Austin, uh, Butch Malone, Homer O'Dell, Don Carson, Ron Wright, and myself, we all got about 275 each. Five other cities that ran that week had a total attendance of 11,000 fans. So for the week, we did 15,600 total fans, which is another new record. We keep breaking records at this point pretty much every week. Uh, the average pay for the 14 guys in the crew that wrestled just on those other five events they made about $800 for the week. When you added up the, the Coliseum shows and what they made for those other five shows, that was about $800 a week. Now, 44 years ago, as I said, we're talking, we're running about 44 years later when, with each one of these programs. That would have been about $3,600 a week in today's money. So not a bad week for wrestlers back in the day. And it was beginning to uh, tell. I mean, because the crew was beginning to brag about it to other wrestlers around the country. That's going to lead to a lot more great talent getting in touch with me and wanting to come into Southeastern. It's also going to lead, besides better talent, better talent leads to bigger crowds. So at this point, Southeastern's name and reputation, it was really beginning to flourish. Uh, I can see that uh, we're going to go places. We've been promoting the Southeastern Tag Championship Tournament. That's what this program is about. For about four weeks, and on February 29th, 1976, that's the day that we're going to have the tournament to crown the new champion. Uh, we're back for this event in Chilhowee Park. But the fan base is more energized now than it has been. They're really, really getting into what we're doing. Uh, for the first time since we've been going into the Coliseum, I saw fans at Chilhowee Park that I knew that they were probably Coliseum fans, had gone to Coliseum fans. And the same thing was happening in the opposite direction. In the Coliseum shows, I was seeing more fans that were normally going to be, I call them Chill Highway Park fans. So it meant we were at this point making fans that didn't care where we ran anymore. Uh, and But they were more concerned about when we ran and uh, what building do we go to. And that was really pushing business in the right direction. It's, it's hard to describe, man, how much pride. I really felt in the seeing my company, boom, start to take off, as I'm going to find out a couple of years down the road, to huge success. This card on Sunday afternoon, 
last day of February on the 29th was uh, more than just a five-team tournament. There were two single matches on this card as well. The opening match of the afternoon is going to be Southeastern champion Don Carson versus Charlie Cook. That means when you got your champion in the first match, <laughs> you got a hell of a card. And this card is a tremendous card. And uh, I, I was proud of it. I was proud when I, when I looked back and, and remembered this card. It was like, wow, what a hell of a card. So the next to the last match on this card is going to be me against Tor Tanaka. And Tanaka's managed by Homer Odell, obviously. And it's the first time that I had ever worked with Tanaka. The stipulations of this match is the winner of this match between Tanaka and I, two weeks later, we're going back to the Coliseum. And uh, the winner of this uh, match between Tanaka and I is going to wrestle Carson for the Southeastern title. So uh, here's the five teams that's in the tournament on this day. So Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golan, uh, Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, obviously managed by Homer, Ron and Don Wright, the superstars, and another great team in Tennessee history, Don and Al Green, a team that had won just about every championship in the state of Tennessee. They had been wrestling together for many, many years and were a tremendous team. There were six total matches on the card. You're going to get five matches. You're going to get four matches out of that five teams, and then you've got those two single matches I just mentioned. And uh, one of those teams uh, is going to receive a bye in the first round of the tournament because the four teams are going to wrestle each other. There's five teams. One of them's going to get a bye. And we're going to talk about how that was all put together. Once Les and I looked at what's going to happen, we decided that we're going to change the format for the Saturday show right before this. And uh, we're going to have this tournament, the pairings, the drawing for the pairings in the tournament on the personality profile. And, and also on this television show is going to be the, what, the first time ever she'd ever defended her world title on TV. The fabulous Moolah is defending her world title on this same television program. It's a super television program. Because the five teams are on this show, let's open the show with the personality profile, and that's opening the show. That's normally in the middle of the show, of every other show. This show, we open with the personality profile. Uh, and this profile is on the profile set, the normal profile set. And uh, the, uh, deal, the deal is on this one that uh, Les is there. He starts out by himself. He's in Studio B. There's a big uh, opening between the big studio where the fans are and Studio B. So the fans can see what's going on in that studio next to them. And they've also got monitors to watch in front of them. Les is sitting there. He's got the two tag team belts. He's got a brightly colored box, which has the, the pairings inside, the slips. The Every one of these teams is going to come and draw their own slip right there and live on TV. So Les opens the program. He welcomes the fabulous Moolah, who's going to be on later, defending their world title. Uh, and then he explains the studio audience and those at home that today's show is going to have a different format because of the five-team tournament. Uh, he explains that uh, this has been done because Southeastern Wrestling wants to give the fans an opportunity to see the teams pick their pairings. That's not usually done. And uh, this is going to be done live. So uh, we thought that was a great touch. We've got to get the fans involved from the very beginning of the show. And it, and it makes more sense because by doing it this way, it allows each team to know who they're wrestling so that when they interview after this opening with the personality profile and they get their pairings, then they know who to talk about and what to talk about. So that makes the program have more meaning from beginning to end. So each team, they're going to pick separately from the box. So after, after all the teams had picked, Les says, I'm going to announce the two first round matches and who had received a buy. And then he welcomed the studio audience and those at home to today's Southeastern Wrestling Show. And this audience in the studio gave a huge round of applause. And we're off to a heck of a start. So then he asked the first team to come to set, Ron and Don Wright. They come into the uh, Studio B, and boy, they got a tremendous ovation. Don Wright had not been seen for quite a while. Ron had another black eye. <laughs> and then from his last match the Sunday before in the cage, uh, Don Carson get, did what he said he was going to do, and he blacked his other eye. So Ron had another black eye. 
you know, and, and he kind of stood out, obviously, with that big old black eye. Uh, Les thanked him for coming and, for, and thanked him for participating in the tournament. And he asked him what they thought their chances were of winning. Well, Ron answered the deal for him. You know, Don, Don didn't do a lot of talking. Ron did a lot of that. But after their answer, then Ron reached into the box. Les said, you pull your pairing out. He reached into the box. He was the first one to pick, and he handed it to Les. And Les looked at it, and he said, Ron and Don Wright are going to be in match one of round one tomorrow in Chihuahua Park. Uh, Les wished him luck. And then, he, then in, uh, you know, when they left, obviously, he got another big round of applause. Uh, Les calls the second team out, Norville Austin, Butch Malone, and their manager, Omar Odell. Uh, this team came out to a lot of booze, obviously. Les thanked them for their participation. Same thing he's going to do with all five of these teams. And he asked them the same questions as he asked the Wrights. What do they think their chances are of winning? Homer answered the question. And then he picked his slip from the box and handed it to Les. And Les announced that he would be in match two of round one. And they departed the studio, and, uh, and the crowd booed as they left. Uh, Les called the next team, Don and Al Green, who were met with a tremendous amount of boos. I was amazed because they had never wrestled for me in Southeastern before. But they weren't strangers to Knoxville fans. They were not only the former Tennessee tag champions, but they had held every tag title in the state of Tennessee at one time or another. Uh, they answered the question. They drew the slip. And Les announced that they were match two of round one. Uh, Les called Rob, my brother Robert, and Jimmy Golden. And the studio crowd, as soon as those two guys appeared, just exploded, man. They answered the question. Uh, they drew the slip. And Les announced that they had drawn a bye, which meant that they didn't have to wrestle in the first round at all. They weren't going to wrestle until the second round. Uh, the audience obviously showed their approval when Jimmy and Rob left. Let's call for the final team in the tournament, the superstars. And uh, you can imagine at this point, these, these boys got some heat. You can imagine what kind of response they got. They answered the question. They drew their, their slip. And uh, Les announced that uh, they had drawn match one of round one. The audience popped because they instantly realized that that's going to put them in the first match of the night against Ron and Don Wright. First match of the tournament, I should say. So uh, Les then set up the rounds in the tournament. He announced he went through the process. He announced that the Wright brothers would face the superstars in match one of round one. The crowd exploded again. Doing this live in front of the audience made a tremendous difference in this profile and the opening of the show. He then announced Norvell Austin and Butch Malone going to face Don and Al Green in match two of round one. He announced Robert and Jimmy had drawn a bye. And they weren't going to wrestle in round one at all and would wrestle in round two. He announced that tomorrow, the same box that they were sitting on his desk would be brought to the ring after round one. And both of the two winning teams from that round would draw again to see which team faced Robert and Jimmy in round two. The remaining team that they basically drew by and they're going to then be moved on and they'll be in the finals against the winner of Robert and Jimmy versus the team they're wrestling in round two. So, you know, they had thrown the, then he, right away, we wanted to run the, we knew this was going to take a little bit of time, but we felt like the fans would really enjoy the way it was presented. And they, I think they really did. And Les right away threw it to Phil Rainey to get that first match started. Phil introduced Bill Dundee and Rick Connors. The fans exploded again when Rob and Jimmy came out and they're actually wrestling in that first match. You could just kind of feel the energy in the audience. And I think some of that had to do with an unusual opening of the show. It was a different type of opening, and uh, I think it got over. Things just kept happening. The fabulous Moolah joined Les at the set. So we're rolling. I mean, we've had this profile at the first of the show. Now the ladies' world champion is joining Les at the set. We've got a tag match in the ring and ready to go. So she asked if she could sit with him, you know, <laughs> You know, obviously, Les, he was like he was more than happy to have her sit there, and she had, she said that you know to, uh, right away that she had watched the week's show the week before because we taped early and the show showed back about three hours early. She stayed in the hotel room. She went back and watched the show, and when it aired, she said she was amazed at what she saw. 
She tried to describe some of what she had seen on the wrestling show that she had never seen anywhere in the world. And she'd been all over the world wrestling. When one was instant replays and the split screen personality profile that she had even been on the week before. And then the shots of the wrestling statue uh, that we ran were called bumpers uh, before and after commercial breaks. And, uh, you know, so she had never seen any of that stuff, you know, <laughs> so, so well, Les welcomed her and, and, and the fans and, uh, and told them that she was going to be in the last match of the day. And she seemed more interested in, in Rob and Jimmy than, than uh, anything else, uh, you know, and uh, she, she, she cut Les off right away. She said uh, uh, when the Rob and Jimmy got started into the ring, she says, Oh, those pretty young men are a couple of my favorites. She was like, wow, I really like those boys. So Rob and Jimmy had a great match um, with Dundee mostly because Dundee stayed in the ring a lot and he made the match. Uh, after Dundee stopped Golden and he beat him down a little bit, Jimmy made a hot tag to Robert and Dundee, then tagged Connors in. Well, Rob got things started with Connors, then Dundee came back in, and when he did, Jimmy got in. So the fans are going crazy at this point. Jimmy drop kicked Bill Dundee from the top rope. Wow, another another great one. And uh, and it sent him flying through the ropes and out under the studio floor. And at the same time, Robert was putting a fuller leg lock on Rick Connors. Did something happen on this finish, this instant replay that had never happened on Southeastern before? Bill Kincaid, the director of the show, during this all this action, it got a split screen going, and uh, that split screen turned out to be shown back in the instant replay. First time that had ever happened. And uh, Moolah's still sitting there at the desk with Les. You know, she's she's screaming as loud as the studio audience at the finish. She's like into the match big time. And then when they showed back the instant replay, it obviously also showed that there was split screen. You could see Golden drop kick him through the ropes and Rob put the finishing hold on Rick Connors at the same time. It was, uh, like I said, one of the first times that had ever happened. It was the first time Moolah had ever been at the desk and had seen an instant replay. And she acted just like Dick Steinborn had the week before when he saw his first instant replay ever on a wrestling show. And she just kept asking less toward the end of it before he let her go about why why is it no other wrestling shows have these toys that you've got i think she called them toys you know it's like we're we're playing with toys or whatever but uh this show was really rocking at this point so rob and jimmy go to the set and i joined them and we watched the six-man tag the me dad and rob against austin malone and home road from the sunday before in the coliseum the video began with tanaka arriving at the ring and homer struggling Homer had been beaten three straight falls. He had gotten up after the 30-second rest period. He made it to his feet. But uh, that this after this third one, that Tanaka comes to the ring, and I think Tanaka's watching, and he sees that Homer ain't going to get up. So he comes down to the ring. The referee's counting to 10 on Homer, and Austin and Malone jump the three of us. So the referee's kind of pulled away. He doesn't count the 10. He doesn't count Homer out. Tanaka sneaks in the ring. Referee's on the far side of the ring. And he picks Homer up and drags him over and hangs him in the corner so that he's on his feet. So the ref turned around there. He sees he's on his feet and he just signaled that we're going to continue the match. About that time, Dad went over to Homer and boy, he started to rock him with some of Dad's patented potatoes, as the boys used to call them. Guys hated to work with my dad because he had stiff punches. Uh, unlike me, of course. <laughs> the ref knocked down. You got sure knocked about down. that, Ron? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I mean, some guys, you know, they complain a little bit about my wraparounds. They never called my dad's wraparounds. They called it potatoes. But in my case, they had a special name for it. So ref knocked down, got knocked down in this little brawl that's going on at this point. And they were on the opposite side of the ring, and Rob got thrown out of the ring. While the ref was down, Tanaka got back in the ring, and dad's over there rifling Homer with some horrible shots in the corner. And he chops dead in the back. And then when he falls on the mat, he gets him up. And boy, he hits him with one of those chops in the forehead. And dad's gone. He's down. Uh, and then he throws Homer on top of dad. And Tanaka jumps back out of the ring. Meanwhile, Austin uh, is on the far side of the ring with me. Rob's on the floor. Austin full Nelson's me. And Malone goes in his tights. He's got something in his tights. The referee's still down. 
he takes a wild punch at me and I duck it and Austin didn't. <laughs> and uh, Austin went down. And so, so I knocked Malone down and I covered Austin. About that time, the ref is about to regain his feet and he sees that I've got Austin covered and right next to me is Homer's got dad covered. And he just re- he goes, lays down between the two of us and counts us out. You know, he counts out Austin. He counts out dead. They, he starts the 30-second rest period, and uh, we're still down. Uh, when the, and Both of them are still down when the rest period's finished. So the ref then has the announcer announce the first man to his feet going to win this match. Well, boy, the crowd was already crazy at this point. We'd been almost 45 minutes in this match. And uh, when he made that announcement, they really went nuts. So and dead, they struggled. Austin and dead were both trying to get their feet. And dad beats him to his feet. Uh, we get our hands raised. We had 15 falls in that Texas death match. Unbelievable match. But Tanaka came back into the ring when it's over. And they've raised our hand. And he knocked my father and Rob to the floor. Got him out of the ring. And then he puts a full Nelson on me. And again, Malone goes in his tights and pulls out his, his gimmick. And he goes to nail me. And again, I duck it. And Malone this time hits the big Oriental monster, man. Tanaka never even flinched. It was like he didn't get touched, but he was mad. He was not mad at me. He was mad at Malone. (laughs) And he went for Malone. And so did Homer. And so did Austin because Austin had been hit by Malone too. So Malone had had accidentally hit both of those guys, Austin and Tanaka, in probably about less than three minutes. He had had screwed up twice in three minutes. Uh, Malone jumped out of the ring and ran to the dressing room. And all three of them ran after him, trying to get him. Uh, so, you know, and then I brought up as we're watching this that, you know, it looked like Tanaka was making a point of, of trying to get to me for no, and he had no business being in the ring anyway. At any point in this match, he was not even in the match, but it kind of led up to me wrestling Tanaka for the following week. Uh, Les threw it to commercial. After that was done, Robert and Jim had talked about how lucky they were to draw by. That made a huge difference in a tournament like that, that you didn't have to wrestle every match. And they felt like that it might propel them to win in the championship. And then I finished the interview talking about my match, <clears throat> being one of the only two single matches of the day. And uh, I, obviously, I knew it was against Tanaka. And the winner of the match, obviously, like I said, got a shot at Don Carson's Southeastern title two weeks later. And I also talked about it being the first time I'd ever been in the ring with Tanaka. And how much I wanted to be Southeastern champion. And how damn tough this guy was. I mean, he was amazing. Uh, studio audience loved every minute of the video. And they liked the interview afterward. So, you know, first segment of this program was pretty darn good. Second match was another tag. Tommy Rich and Rocky Smith uh, introduced. Uh, they got a rousing ovation. Tommy's pretty popular there. Then a team that hadn't been in Knoxville since I started Southeastern was Don and Al Green, and they're on this card, too, on this television. So once they came in the studio, they got booed. I mean, gosh, it was up there uh, similar to Carson and uh, what the uh, superstars were getting. And uh, what a great match those four guys had. Uh, The Green brothers won the match. They beat Rocky Smith probably about six, seven minutes into the match. Don Carson and the superstars joined less then at the set, and they watched some of the Cade match from the previous Sunday. The cage match was between uh, Ron Wright and Don Carson. And uh, these three guys were on fire. I mean, the fans were just so really into these guys. They they had tremendous heat. Les opened the video with Ron Wright and his chisel. He was chasing Carson all over the ring. Uh, Carson kept trying to climb out of the cage. And then Carson screamed at the director upstairs. He goes, well, no, no, stop. What, what are you doing? No, no. We don't want to see that part of the video. He says, uh, Run the part of the video that me and the superstars put together with the production crew. He's like taking Les's job. And Les says to him, he says, wait a minute. Uh, you know, uh, he says, uh, why is it he don't want to see that part of the video? You know, because Ron Wright won the match. He asked those guys and they didn't even answer. They, they act like they didn't even hear it. Carson just kept insisting, run that other video, run that other video. When the second piece of video started, Carson throwing the referee into the cage. He's taking the key to the door out of the referee's pocket. He unlocks the cage door. And uh, when he finished, he motions to the back of the Coliseum for the superstars to come to the ring. 
when they come to the ring, they get in the ring with him. A lot of fans in the studio, most of them probably had seen this event live, and they didn't want to watch this again. They started booing this part of it. Then the video showed the superstars entered the cage. Carson locked the cage door back, and it showed a, a very bloody Ron Wright alone in that ring now in that cage with three guys. And uh, he tried to fight back against the three of them, but obviously there's no way he's going to get that done. So then the Carson and the superstars are watching the video, and they start having a ball with the fact that baby faces started coming from the dressing room trying to climb over the cage to get in there so that they could help Ron Wright. And the two superstars just kept knocking them off to the concrete floor. And then obviously Carson just kept working on poor Ron Wright. So it showed a huge crowd then at the end. It showed the crowd that I talked about last week that kind of surged up from out of the, even out of the second balcony down onto the floor. And it showed a crowd that was tremendously upset. <laughs> and and uh, there was a great amount of noise in this video. And uh, and chaos at this point. The video captures the three guys, Carson and the two superstars, leaving the ring, having to push the policemen were great. They shoved the fans back enough that they could get them out of the cage. And then uh, they started a mass of people started going to the back. The video showed the mass of people following the, these three guys trying to get their hands on them. And uh, they were laughing watching the video. Because then the last shot showed Ron Light laying unconscious in the ring. Uh, so, you know, and then Carson reminded his buddies about Ron Wright's new black eye that they had seen earlier on the show, courtesy of his peanut butter that he called it. And he, as usual, proudly showed his black glove. And, you know, my peanut butter black that eye I told you it was going to happen. And the studio was on their feet by this point. They were mad about it. Superstars promised Carson. They were going to win the Southeastern belts the next day because they faced and because they faced Ron and Don Wright in the first round that they guaranteed old Don they were going to leave those hillbillies laying when it was all over. Carson said, you know, they were all just a man. They're enjoying this interview this time. They've just patting each other on the back. And Carson ends it by saying, you know, late tomorrow afternoon, guys, the three of us, are all going to be Southeastern champions. I'm the Southeastern heavyweight champion. Y'all going to be the Southeastern tag champions. Boy, the crowd really went crazy then. They were making so much noise, you couldn't hear anything they were saying. Don Al Green, they came to take the commercial. After the commercial break, they did that second interview, and they guaranteed they were going to walk out of Chilhowee Park the next day the way they had always walked out of Chilhowee Park with championship belts on their shoulders. Pretty darn good interview, I thought. And uh, uh, so, yeah, program's going great at this point. Okay, Ron, now's a good time to take a break as David Summers will tell us about Super Studcast number 26 with Jeff Van Camp, the original Lord Humongous from Southeastern Wrestling, plus almost two hours of stories from the road going back to the 1940s with the Tennessee Stud. Super Studcast number 26 is another tremendous example of the deep dives and fantastic stories that have captured the interest of the wrestling world at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This three hours of educational entertainment begins with one of the five best wrestling ideas ever that created the monster known as Lord Humongous. Six feet, six inches, 315 pound Jeff Van Camp reveals what it was like to horrify fans around the South as part of the stud stable. Then the stud takes over the last two hours, telling no less than 30 classic stories of his grandfather, his grandfather's brother, his dad, and many more at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only $2.99. The best deal in wrestling are these super studcasts, especially when they come from one of the best storytellers in the world. Okay, Ron, before we get to the third match, I have a quick question regarding the fabulous moolah. So what was your policy as a promoter about having the ladies working on your cards? I know some territories that have them in once or twice a year. Obviously, moolah was the uh, women's champion for, good Lord, 25, 30 years. What was your policy on having the ladies on the card? I didn't like to use them too much. Uh, I didn't feel like fans really wanted to see a lot of women wrestling. But when I did do it, I tried to always do it with moolah. If you're going to have women wrestlers, you might as well have the top one. 
And uh, I usually started doing, as Southeastern grows, I start doing these double world championships. And then starting in about 77, I do triple world championships. I do the NWA heavyweight championship, the NWA junior heavyweight championship, and the world's ladies championship, all on the same card. And underneath that is usually the Southeastern Championship, the Southeastern Tag Championship. Some of these cards get just unbelievable with the amount of talent and and all the championship matches that fans came to see. That's why we were just packing this big old Coliseum. And uh, so, you know, I tried not to use use them too much. And when I did, I tried as much as possible to make it Moolah and a world championship event. Okay. Now run on to the third match of the day. Yep, it's a third straight tag match. I mean, uh, Tony Peters and Dennis Condry, uh, they're announced, and then uh, Ron and Don Wright enter the studio. Obviously, they get the same, uh, you know, the same welcome they always do. And those two boys were really good about going around and shaking hands. They were part of their audience, and that's why I think they were loved so much. The Wrights seemed like, man, they were on a mission to win here, you know, and then more importantly, they were on a mission to get started with a big win and move on to the tournament the next day. They went to the set after pinning Tony Peters, and Ron asked Les to show uh, the video of the cage match again, but this time to show the part that they that they started to show at the beginning of the program. So they rolled the tape, and it showed Ron Wright at this point. He was punishing Carson, man. He was just punishing his glove hand, stomping his glove hand and smashing it into the turnbuckles. And uh, Carson was really in trouble at this point. And uh, after he punished him for a while, Ron reached into his tights and he brought out what every old East Tennessee Russian fan wanted to see, the chisel, by golly. So Ron started explaining it, you know, that that he was bleeding pretty bad. Uh, But once I got my hand on the chisel, as Ron say, you know, uh, he was going to even the score because Don Carson had peanut butter and by golly, I got a chisel. So from here on, it was, according to Ron, just a good old Tennessee dog whooping time. And uh, that's basically what happened at the end of this match. I mean, once Ron took over, he's already, Ron was bleeding. And once he nailed Carson with that chisel, obviously Carson was bleeding. Uh, so the right state were less. After the, it showed Ron winning the actual match, you know, which uh, that was important. That's what Carson didn't want him to see. And that's what Les wanted the fans to see. And it ended with him winning the match. And then, obviously, the part that Carson talked about uh, is the part where uh, the match was over. So Wright stayed with Les. They stayed with him for the two-minute interview after the commercial break. And uh, Don started out with a real good fact that his brother had been through a lot with Don Carson and the Don Superstars. And now, you know, he had to, to even, you know, he had to, he had to comment. He said, look at, look at him. He's got a second black eye. And then Don made a good comment. Don was not a great interviewer, but he said, you know, it's time that uh, we do a little eye blacking of ourselves, Ron. And and the fans really liked that. And then Ron took over with his normal stuff. I mean, he, he always had him. And he promised that the next day, two things were definitely going to happen. Two superstars. We're going to end up bleeding for a change instead of him. And him and Donnie was going to win them brand new tag team belts and become the first ever Southeastern tag champions. Damn, fans didn't need to hear any more than that. Hey, you couldn't hear yourself thinking there uh, that uh, 250 or so fans in that studio sounded like 2,500. The last match of the day was obviously what we had been promised and what we had talked about the week before the ladies' world championship on television. Mula made it plain early in the program when she was on that she had never defended her world championship on television before. So this is a first-time ever event for wrestling. Candy Devine is the person that she's wrestling, the lady she's wrestling. And uh, Mula, once she entered the studio to wrestle, the crowd, uh, they'd seen a lot all day, but they sure didn't like Mula. They didn't care for it all. Uh, it didn't take long for her to get another win. Boy, and she brutally, I mean, brutally beat up uh, that young Candy Devine, who was very young at this point. Mula was getting up in age and, um, you know, much more experienced. 
She did things to Candy Devine that made me cringe. I'm up in the control room, and uh, Bill Kincaid would go, oh, oh. He's like, oh, Ron. <laughs> I was like, wow. What did, look what she's doing. I mean, fans just, if they had never seen Mula in action before, uh, they had to be impressed with how mean she was, just how nasty she was. And, you know, and fans just despised her. And you could see why. But at the same time, I think they all really respected Mula because she was damn tough as nails. For a woman, uh, she was pretty scary. Homer and his entourage, they joined Les at the desk. Uh, the last part of the program, and they're going to watch some of that same six-man Texas death that me, me and Rob had watched earlier in the program. But they're going to watch a different piece of it. Uh, Homer only wanted to bring the attention to Butch Malone, who had screwed up. He had, he had done wrong. And uh, and he, the entire time, it showed Malone hitting Austin. Then it showed Malone hitting Tanaka. You know, and the entire time, Homer's only just big time on Malone you know, about costing them to, to lose the Texas death match. And, Poor old, I felt sorry for Butch. Poor old Butch, he, he lowered his head and he took it. Well, he didn't have any choice because he's standing between <laughs> Tanaka on one side and Austin on the other, and the video showing him hit both of them by mistake. So, you know, Homer got right up in his face at the end and he just threatened him, personally threatened him. You know, I'm going to kick your butt, man, if you ever do anything like that. Malone never said a word during this entire segment. Not at all. So, Let's do it to the break. Uh, Homer and his men, they were still there when the cameras came back. Uh, this time, he guaranteed his Tennessee Tag Champions were going to also be the Southeastern Champions, and they only had about 24 hours to wait to make it happen. Uh, he felt sorry for Don and Al Green, he said, Homer, in the first round of the tournament because they got my boys, you know, and they're going to have a real quick day. And then he switched gears, and he focused on Tanaka's match with me uh he again felt sorry this time though it was for a fuller you know and he said it's pretty hard for him to feel sorry for a fuller and he he said my monster is going to be taking that fuller apart and uh and in two weeks he's going to take don carson apart to win the southeastern championship uh he reminded fans of what he had heard carson say earlier in the program about him and the superstars leaving the park tomorrow with both southeastern championships and he, he focused and he looked right straight in the cameras. This is great stuff because you've got two heel teams here that are mad at each other. I mean, everybody is out to get this belt. And he told Carson and the superstars, his crew were the real superstars. <laughs> they named his, he named Malone and Austin his own superstars. And within two weeks, they would not just have both titles, the Southeastern and the Tennessee title, but Tanaka is going to have the Southeastern title. And then he went out of there strutting, man, like only Homer could do. And uh, Tanaka had a little bit of strut to him himself and Austin too. And trailing long behind was poor old Butch Malone, man. He still had his head hung down. Butch was going through hard times with that team at that point. It had been another fantastic TV. And the fourth in a row during ratings month, I couldn't wait for the Arbitron and Nielsen rating books to come out the following month just to see how much we had built our audience in the past four months. Okay, Ron, I hate to stop you, but I think your learning tree is likely to be a longer one. Maybe we could grab ourselves a cold drink, have a seat under the tree, and finish this episode next week. Okay, that'll work for me. I mean, uh, you know, it is going to be a fairly long one, and uh, so uh, let's get right into it. I'm going to tell a Kind of a fascinating little wrestling history story today about the Goulas family, and uh, especially about George Goulas in particular. And this story, you know, like I said earlier in the show, it's kind of a real learning tree for me at this point. I'm a young guy and a young booker and a young owner. And as I said earlier in the show, uh, uh, this was the first match on the Coliseum card on February 22nd, 1976, the week before. And, uh, this story goes much deeper than just one match on a Coliseum show. It's actually about George Goulas and his father, Nick Goulas. I'll give you a little background into Nick Goulas and his wrestling family. Uh, Nick became uh, my grandfather Roy's partner in the original Tennessee Territory. And it all started, Nick 
was from Birmingham, Alabama, and as a young guy, he used to come to the matches at Boutwell Auditorium. Same place Southeastern is going to run and Continental is going to run in the 70s and 80s. They're having matches back in the 40s in Birmingham, and Nick's just a fan. And he used to hang around the back of the building. I talked to my grandfather. I said, how did this all happen? And he said, well, they had a kid who used to hang around the back of the building in Birmingham. And he said, I was about, I was the last guy out of the building. And usually I had the money with me and I, I was uh, headed back uh, into Tennessee. And he said, I, he felt sorry for him. You know, he said, the kid was asking, can I do anything? Uh, I love this sport. I, can I, can, can I? So he started allowing him to do little things like put out rusting posters in Birmingham and just little odd jobs here and there. And Nick was a, he was a hard worker and, uh, you know, and he had a good business mind too, you know? So he wasn't ever a wrestler. He never wanted to be a wrestler. And Roy was running the biggest territory in the country. You know, he was operating in 12 states in the South. Roy knew how to handle wrestling business, but he needed help to handle the financial side of the business because his company was so large at this point. So he's running three or four towns a night in 12 different states and he needs somebody to help him in his office. So he started giving Nick more things to do, obviously. And uh, one of the things he gave him to do was to handle the box offices at night. Uh, he had him move to Nashville. And, uh, but the wrestlers hated Nick. And, I, you know, I don't really know how that got started to begin with, but I know Nick hated wrestlers. And, and I asked my granddad, you know, why is it that wrestlers had such animosity toward Nick and why did Nick have such animosity toward them? And he told me a story about how he would send Nick with the wrestlers to certain towns. So Nick would check up the house while the wrestlers were doing their thing. And he said that the wrestlers put Nick in the back floorboard of the car and they would put their feet on him, travel 300 miles. And back in the old days with no freeways, long days with Nick laying in the floorboard and wrestlers scraping their dirty feet off on top of him. And uh, Nick grew to hate wrestlers because of that. And as Nick became Roy's partner, he, he, was, he had power. You know, I mean, he had huge power. He, he owned half the company. So it was time for Nick to get even. And he treated wrestlers horribly, especially when he paid. Nick was famous for bad payoffs. Guys respected Roy. They didn't have any choice. I mean, Roy beat the hell out of him if they said anything to him and they didn't like it. But all of them hated Nick. And as time went by, Nick had a son named George. And uh, George wanted to become a wrestler, unlike his daddy. And uh, when he became older, that's where Nick put him, because Nick treated his kid uh, like he was a baby. He, you know, it was horrible the way George grew up, because Nick just babied him horribly. George wasn't tough. He was never a great athlete. And he was a pitiful wrestler. I mean, it was, he was just horrible. And everyone hated to work with him, because his work was just terrible. Eventually, Nick will take George and make him his champion on his part of the Tennessee territory. And uh, that will be the demise of Nick and George and part of the Tennessee territory. In fact, we buy Birmingham in 1980. Southeastern buys Birmingham from Nick and the eastern side of Tennessee territory because it's been killed by George Goodwin at this point. So let's back up now to this Knoxville card on Sunday, February 22nd, 1976. And I'll try to explain how it relates to a learning tree. As I said, the first match on that card, George Goulas versus Tony Peters. Now, my father had precipitated all this. He had started all this. He asked me as a favor to put George on one of my Coliseum shows. And, and I told him the first time he asked me, I said, forget it. It ain't going to happen, you know? And then I tried to explain to Dad. I said, I, I've worked too hard here to try to build Southeastern, and, and I'm not going to let George Goulas come in and have one match and kill everything I've, I've tried to do. And then my father keeps asking me over a couple of years, or at least a year or, or uh, 14 months, uh, several other times about putting him on a Coliseum show. So, uh, you know, he just kept coming and asking again and again and again. Uh, so finally, it reached a point to where 
I told him I, every time I would tell him other things. And this time when he asked me, I, said, I tried to explain to my dad, I said, how disrespectful would it be for me to put a horrible talent like George Goulas on the same card with a guy like Ron Wright? Especially since Ron Wright had done a hard way for me three weeks earlier, and he helped to explode my business uh, and, uh, and to set up a big crowd in the Coliseum. I said, it's just not right, Dad. It's not right. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be right for Ron Wright. I'm disrespecting him. I also told him I had another reason. Very bluntly, I said, it, it'll hurt my company. I told him when I arrived 15 months ago, the previous owner, John Cazana, had never even ran a show in the Coliseum. Uh, John Cazana's audiences in the park were less educated, and they were comfortable out there in the park. Uh, but I told Dad, I said, before I bought this company, I thought that being in the Coliseum is where the future was. That's where the big money was going to be. I had to get into that Coliseum. And I told him I knew the Chihai Park fans, they weren't going to like coming to the Coliseum. And I also knew that the new fans, the people that didn't want to go to Chihai Park, they were watching my TV show, and they only wanted to go to the Coliseum. So I told him I thought that uh, these new fans were finally coming out to the big, big events in the Coliseum. And when they did, it's critical for them to be impressed with not just the matches, but the overall entire experience of the night. Ask him how I could afford to have hundreds of these new fans see the type of match that George Goulas was going to have. <laughs> you know, I just kept, I, I tried my best to convince him that, you know, you're, you're, you're asking me something horrible here. And, and then I said, especially, it's the first match of the night. I mean, I said, how do you start your night with a terrible match? I said, you know, you want to kill my company, my business here. I'm working hard. I don't want it to happen. So I said, you know, first impression means everything to fans, to create new fans. You know, they're going to come and they'd see one bad match. It turns them sour to the whole thing. So I finally asked, <laughs> asked if, uh, if I could put Nick on a Chill High Park card. I said, hey, let's just, let me, if you want me to use George, let me put him on a Chill High Park card. And I said, I'd do that for you anytime. But my dad, he wouldn't accept it, uh, nor did he really like the reasons that I've given him for not doing it. So basically, out of respect for my father, I, I reached a point where I couldn't no longer say no to him. So I put George on the opening match on this Coliseum show, February 22nd, about one week before the card was announced. And then I called my dad to tell him that I, I'm answering your request. I'm putting George on the first match of the, this next Coliseum card. And then he says, can you do me another favor? Can you ask the boys to be nice to George? <laughs> so, to me, I was adding insult to injury. I mean, like, oh, me. Now I got to go tell my guys to be nice to him, you know, because they knew he was no, had no talent. They knew he didn't belong in the business. So I never said it to my father, but I, I had a question I really wanted to ask him. I wanted very badly to ask him if his father, Roy, had ever asked him to do such a ridiculous favor as putting a lousy worker on an important card uh, when he was starting his first territory, what would he have said? He never answered me. <laughs> he, 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 didn't, he didn't have an answer. And, and he didn't have to. I knew what the answer was. He would have never put uh, George Goulas on one of his cards. So I gathered up the boys and the crew on a Tuesday night before this Coliseum show in Johnson City, Tennessee, where the whole crew could get together in a dressing room. Uh, it was just four days before the Coliseum show. Uh, and I wanted to tell them before they saw it <laughs> come up on the Vitafon that uh, George Goulas is on this card. I wanted to tell them about it because I knew what kind of reaction they were all going to have. And I told them that I did it as a favor for my dad. You know, I, I didn't I didn't quibble about it. You know, I said I had to do this, guys, basically as a favor to my dad because, you know, and dad wanted him on the card because Nick wanted his son to be on a big time card. So, you know, once I told the guys this, there was a lot of anger. <laughs> and I had to answer a bunch of questions about it. So I just kept putting the blame squarely where it belonged, right on my dad, you know, and, and thankfully dad had a lot of respect among my crew and among wrestlers around the country. Uh, then I asked, 
would would they please <laughs> and ask for the second favor? Would you please be nice to George as an extra favor to my father? Boy, there was a lot of head shaking then and sour expressions, but but they all basically agreed that they'd be on their best behavior the following Sunday in Knoxville's Coliseum show. That Sunday afternoon, we all dressed in the same huge dressing room. We used separate doors to enter the Coliseum. Heels went to the back of the building. Baby faces came out of the side of the building. So everyone was in the same dressing room, and George Goulis arrives with his father, Nick. Nick comes with him. Nick drives him because George, at 30 years old, can't drive himself. Nick and my father, they go outside of the dressing room, and they're talking privately in the back. And George goes around the dressing room uh, doing the customary wrestling formality of uh, of uh, shaking hands, introducing himself to people that he doesn't know, and uh, shaking people's hands and saying hello. It's uh, kind of the way the wrestling business was done. Guys learned that pretty early, to be respectful and to get respect. Uh, you needed to do that when you go into a dressing room that's new for you. Uh, many of the guys in there had worked for Nick, and they'd starved while they were doing it. Hundreds of wrestlers, big-name wrestlers, had started their careers in Tennessee. I'm going to tell you a real quick story about one of them, Jack Briscoe. Jack and I worked together a lot in the 70s, early 70s in Florida. I asked Jack one time, uh, did you ever work Tennessee? He said, yes, I did, Ron. And I said, well, how did you like it? How did it work? And he goes, I didn't. He said, it was horrible for me. I said, well, what do you mean it was hard? And he said, I'll tell you. He said, I drove into, into Nashville. I owned a Cadillac. He said, I stayed there for four months, and I rode out in a Greyhound bus. <laughs> now, I think he was exaggerating, but I'm not so sure he was exaggerating. I mean, Jack Briscoe had no respect for Nick Goulas and very little for my grandfather because my grandfather kind of had some blame for being a, a part of it as well. So I knew that the most every guy there was going to, what they were going to do, and, they, you know, that they would probably do what I'd ask them to do and kind of be nice, except for maybe if anybody, Don Carson. So George arrives, and he's going around the dressing room, and I'm sitting at the far end of the dressing room, and I've got my back to what's going on, but I'm paying attention to it. <laughs> so George starts around the dressing room, and, uh, and everyone's pretty cordial to him until he gets uh, to Carson and Dunn. And, uh, you know, so Carson and Dunn and Leon Baxter, the two superstars and Don Carson, had worked the Tennessee Territory on and off many times. Uh, most of the time they worked for Roy's side of the territory, which they made good money in. But occasionally they had to work for Nick and they hated it when that happened. So they made good money working Roy's side. They starved when they worked Nick's side. So, uh. George got to the superstars. He's working his round the dressing room. He gets to Tarzan Baxter, and Tarzan's polite to him. Dick Dunn, he's somewhat polite to him. Uh, but when he gets to Don Carson, he puts his hand out there. I glance around there, and he, he puts his hand out, and uh, Carson turned his back on him. <laughs> he wouldn't shake his hand. So George stood there for a few seconds, and then he asked, he says, uh, how you doing, Don? And uh, Don, Don looked around and said, we're all eating good here, George. <laughs> Basically saying, we're making money here, George. <laughs> Things are good. You know, so obviously I wasn't the only one expecting Don to do something because half the guys in the dressing room dropped their heads and they started covering their face and were laughing. And that, so I still had my back turned and, and I tried not to look at him. So I never said anything to Don about it, ever, about what he had said. Uh, in fact, I wanted to do the same thing myself. But, uh, you know, as a respect to my dad, I, I kind of left things uh, like it was. So how did you handle things for his match? Well, I put a lot of thought into it for days before. Just how to handle that, you know. And uh, that afternoon, then we're running the afternoon early in, uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes before bell time. I sent for the ring announcer and the timekeeper. And when they arrived, I told the timekeeper I wanted the bell rung for the first match 10 minutes before the matches were scheduled to start. And, and he, he looked at me very funny, and he asked me, he says, why? 
So I just repeated myself. I, I want it rung 10 minutes. I didn't have to tell him. I just I'd said, I want it rung 10 minutes early. So he didn't ask again, and the two of them left the dressing room. And the reason for that is I'd experienced these Coliseum shows, and I watched the crowds, and they all arrived late. And, uh, you know, I had a feeling that most of those late arrivals were these new fans that were coming to the Coliseum for the first time. And they had probably bought their tickets in advance at the Coliseum box office. We never sold advance tickets at Childhood Park. So they come early, they're in the week, they buy their ticket, and they show up late. So that meant, actually, if we start 10 minutes early and they're not going to come till probably 10 minutes after the normal starting time, it pretty much assured me that a lot of these new fans that I was afraid of losing would never see that first match. <laughs> That's how I handled it. That was, that was one of my ways of handling it. So then I have a second way I handle it. So I set George down with his opponent, Tony Peters, and my great friend, Mac, that uh, helped me get into Southeastern and refereed for me for all those years. Uh, he sat down with us, too. And he knew well the situation with George Goulas being on the card. I told George I wanted to get him over good. <laughs> I might as well. I might as well sell him a good bill of goods, you know, because I, I want to tell him I'd like to beat the hell out of you, George, and throw you out the back door, but, uh, but I'm going to try to get you over good. So I told Tony Peters that after they were both announced and before the bell rang, that when George turned his back and started walking toward the corner, that Tony Peters was going to charge him. From behind. And then I told Mac, I said, as soon as you see uh, Tony Peters charge him, you ring the bell. You motion to the timekeeper and have him ring the bell. Then George asked me, he goes, what do I do? <laughs> and I said, well, you step aside and you switch him. That's a wrestling move. It's a basic wrestling move. You know, you learn to do it as an amateur wrestler, much less a pro. I said, you step aside and you switch him and you drive him into the turnbuckle. And you O'Connor roll him out of the turnbuckle. And George looks at me and he goes, uh, what's an O'Connor roll? <laughs> so I looked at Mac and I dropped my head like, oh, my gosh, oh, my. This is, I don't even know how to do an O'Connor roll. And Mac knew, <laughs> Mac dropped his head, too. He was like, and even Tony Peters looked at me and, uh, and <laughs> as if he was asking, do you think he really doesn't know how to do an O'Connor roll? And uh, I never tried to explain the move to George, uh, you know, and even though it was one of the most frequently used moves in all of wrestling. So then I took another tack. I said, OK, George, I said, uh, uh, when he charges you, you step aside. And then when he gets past you, you shove him in the back into the turnbuckles. And I said, drop down on your hands and knees behind him. And when he staggers back, he'll fall over you, grab his legs and pull him up and cover him. I call it the old schoolboy finish because it was so simple, right? I mean, nobody could mess that up. So uh, Mac covered his face again, and he turned away. He's about to laugh again, like, oh, Ron, <laughs> are, you, are you serious? So uh, George looks at me, and he goes, is that it? <laughs> so I couldn't help it. I had to throw it in there. I, I said, uh, yeah, that's probably more than enough, as a matter of fact, George. <laughs> So Peters and Mac then both started giggling and laughing. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> so so uh, I was having a little fun there, man. So did you watch the finish? And did you say anything to your dad about it, uh, the entire thing? No, I didn't watch the finish. As a matter of fact, uh, because uh, I, I was sure if I went out there and I watched it and he screwed that something as simple as that up, that it was going to affect me for the entire afternoon. You know, I had a lot of things to do, important things to do and running these Coliseum shows and finishes and all the things I had to do. And the last thing I needed was to start my afternoon off with George Gouda screwing it up. So I really didn't see what happened. The answer is no, I didn't watch the finish uh, and I was afraid to. Uh, the second part of the question, I found my dad. As soon as I finished giving George the finish, I looked my dad up. I took him outside the dressing room. And I told him in uh, no uncertain terms that I never wanted him to ever ask me to put someone like George Goulas on one of my cards again. And he understood. He, he shook his head. He didn't say, he just shook his head and he kind of walked away. And I think it probably definitely affected our relationship uh, for the future between me and my dad. 
Okay, if you'd like to be friends with the uh, stud on Facebook, all you have to do is like his page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, on Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. Super stud cast number 26 is very popular. One hour with Jeff Van Camp, the original Lord Humongous. Fans rave about the almost two hours of Ron's 30 stories from his grandfather to Don Fargo to Jack Briscoe at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. Ron, where are we going next week? Where are we going to finish this week's episode? Uh, since we didn't really have time to get to all of it, we'll give you the results of this big tag team tournament, obviously, the attendance and the payoffs, and uh, we'll cover some other towns for that week. And we're going to West Virginia. Uh, we're expanding uh, southeastern. It's it's going to start where television is there, and we're about to take our our, our crew to West Virginia. Uh, we're also going to start looking at the next Coliseum show, which is going to be on March 14th, 1976. I got another great learning tree question uh, next week, too. Uh, uh, this one's about being a wrestler and about how important it is to sell. How important it is to sell what another wrestler does to you how hard it is to learn to do it. And uh, basically, how do you read the crowd to understand whether you're getting it done properly or not? Great question. And uh, before we go, I, I want to thank everybody for riding with me today. I appreciate everybody and all the fans that, uh, that I have out there around the world. And may God bless us all. Okay, so for our host, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, for our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, I am Jeff Boudrin reminding you that the Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And until next week, when the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.